0: W-D-A-Y. This is Thomas Beadle, State Representative from District 27 in South Fargo. I'm filling in for Rob today on this last show of 2017. I'm thrilled to be here. Rob's taking some much-needed time off, but he's certainly going to be back next week. So for those who want to tune in and listen to Rob, he'll be back on uh, right away next week, and, and you'll, you'll get to deal with him and no longer deal with us guys. We're just kind of keeping the seat warm for him. This afternoon, we're going to have a pretty good show today. Later on, we're, we've got one of uh, Governor Burgum's senior policy advisors. He's going to come on at the 1 o'clock hour to give us an inside scoop on how uh, things have been going for the Burgum administration in their first year in 2017. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the FM diversion and the task force that they had there, as well as his overall experiences. So so Levi Bachmeyer, one of the senior policy advisors for Governor Burgum, will be on uh, to join us at the top of the 1 o'clock hour. Uh, but first... I'm uh, happy to welcome in studio uh, really the only candidate so far in this 2017 uh, 2018 cycle uh, who's announced their intentions for, to run for US Congress uh, he's the only candidate for either party right now seeking uh, the endorsement uh, former uh, state representative Ben Hansen welcome to the studio
1: thanks for having me on Tom
0: well Ben uh, you've been making the rounds a little bit on WDAy this week you've been you've been on uh Uh, really filling in with all the guest spots. You've been on the McFeely show, you've been on the Jay Thomas show, and and we're happy to have you on on the the Rob report uh, to talk to, you know, people during this time slot and and all the
1: people keep asking. So I keep coming. You know what?
0: And as a a politician, I think that's your job. If they're asking, you got to get out in front of those microphones. Uh, But you've got a message you want to tell. You've got uh, certainly a little bit of experience you want to bring to the table and and some background that you think will serve North Dakotans well. Uh, So why don't you take, you know, Start off, uh, tell North Dakotans about yourself just in case they didn't catch any of
1: your earlier appearances. Absolutely, and I, I do appreciate the uh, ability to talk to a few different uh, different kinds of audiences and folks who are able to listen to the radio at different times of day, too. So, uh, My name's Ben Hansen. As you were saying, I am going to seek my party, the Democratic NPL Party's nomination to run for Congress next year in 2018. As you said, uh, kind of interestingly, I'm the only declared candidate for that congressional seat right now, including the current office holder. I'm sure that will change here soon. Being a next year, but that's all pure speculation. I'm from Fargo area here. My family's from both the Red River Valley and out by the Crosby, Wollaston area, where most of them are my immediate family are farmers. I'm a commercial real estate agent here in town. I was born and raised and went to school here. I work here now, and I for a brief while, uh, served in the state legislature with you. Not quite, uh, don't have quite your illustrious career, but I, I was there for, from 2012 to 2016, and in one of the sessions I got to serve as a caucus chair for my caucus, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I really enjoyed my time there. I felt like I uh, was able to, you know, talk about some new technology, autonomous vehicles, talk about uh, bringing some kind of efficiency to state government, the way we run. Uh, county and uh, city government, how it relates to the state government, how we do business registrations, uh, just looking at some of the more, you know, updating some of our IT models there. And I really fell in love with the process between that and uh, working in Senator Conrad's office when I was in my college days. And I just, I I found out that I had a passion for constituent services that led me uh, earlier this year to uh, consider and eventually agree to run for the congressional seat here uh, in North Dakota to kind of bring back what I saw as a uh, constituent-focused representation of North Dakota on a federal level, especially for this unique seat we have here. You know, we every state, of course, has two U.S. senators. And, of course, uh, North Dakota is the envy of a place like a California or a a New York where we, we are able to access our senators so much more easily compared to states with much larger populations. But we're one of six or seven states that only has one congressman. And that places a unique responsibility on them to represent uh, a state with a unique economy like ours in a body that has over 400 people. And some would say, and I would agree, that is not functioning very well these days, and that's the U.S. House of Representatives.
0: I'd say the majority of Americans, no matter what your political persuasion, is going to agree that uh, Congress isn't necessarily always functioning very well. Uh, and,
1: and it doesn't have to be that way, too. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you, but we can change it.
0: Well, and as I mean, both of us served in, in the House of Representatives in the North Dakota side. So we understand, you know, the, the roles and responsibilities of the institution and that the House serves. When we're the, we're the, the people's chamber. We're, we're the ones that, that are responsible for a lot of the budgetary process and getting everything going. And, and sometimes the executive power likes to usurp that authority. I had the opportunity to serve with you on a couple of different committees, Industry, Business, and Labor Committee, Political Subdivisions Committee. And, and you know, I saw saw you working on, on a number of bills. You mentioned them, the autonomous vehicle, some of the IT stuff. Uh, and we had the opportunity to co-sponsor some legislation together, the, the ethics reform in, in terms of campaign finance and some, oh, yeah. some disclosure, not using it for personal funds, um, which now is going to take effect for law. starting January 1, 2018. Which is excellent. Um, and then uh, as well as... The the you know push to to make sure that all all meeting minutes and everything like that there's transparency there and all that's
1: on county websites. Um, you you gotta ask Levi for me if we're gonna move towards publishing the governor's committees online and see if we can't expire those if, will, if they don't meet because that with the Microsoft governor there,
0: <laughs> with a Microsoft governor I expect we should be able to get some. Well, going.
1: yeah, but you remember I got shot down on that one. I was trying to curb the number of committees we had and they they didn't like it because it was new or what no what was the Reason given, it was. We tried it in
0: the '90s, and and we had a committee to look at all the committees, and they didn't come up with anything. So, so we kept them all anyway. So, why why so, study them again? So
1: then the governor has over 200 boards that we don't have being held accountable yeah. for what they're doing. It just it was ridiculous. Well, but that that was the past, but I hope it gets reformed
0: for sure. And and, and as your time in North Dakota, you you started working on. Uh, a lot of different issues but you had to function as part of the extreme minority in, in North Dakota really caused a lot of uphill challenges
1: extreme or we like to call it the Hardy minority. absolutely
0: but one of the things that we looked at <laughs> is uh, as we you know as, as you look at you know you're right we have one at-large congressional person uh, in going to DC for North Dakota so so how do you see you know being able to navigate that plane and, and make your voice effective uh, as you would go to DC as the sole representative for North Dakota.
1: I think it's an excellent question. I think you have to be able to uh, display a uh, ability to influence your uh, fellow, uh, fellow caucus members and those of the opposition. And I think almost more importantly now, when the rural, in the let's try that again, in the rural and urban divide that you see in the House of Representatives, there are so few uh, rural members now compared to what it used to be even 10, 20 years ago in the US House. The Senate tends to even that out. We we have equal representation by the states. But When you're looking at something like the Farm Bill being renewed next year, now, unfortunately, we have an Urban Democratic Caucus that doesn't quite understand how far- farm life works and what we need to make to grow the things that feed the world. And we have a Freedom Caucus on the right that doesn't see the need for any kind of crop insurance or programs that help helped kept keep our family farmers afloat for a long time. I don't particularly feel like Kevin Kramer's been able to use his uh incumbency and influence on his own caucus to help bring some of those people forward to keep keep those programs going and i think I, I could bring that kind of influence to my caucus and hopefully speak to those more republican members in rural areas to help keep these programs that we've needed going we've got a farm bill coming up really quickly i see the clock's getting you but yeah. we have a farm bill coming up for renewal that's going to be the first one that's been up for renewal in a while with down commodity prices so it's going to be so important to have those those right seats at the table. Well,
0: and, and speaking of the the farm bill and the commodity prices, and I will say, you know, one thing that uh, Congressman Kramer has done is is to help with, you know, bring North Dakota to the table. He was able to bring President Trump to North Dakota and, and have some of that dialogue engaged. So so the argument can be made. He has been, you know, putting a lot of North Dakota interests out there and his background as public service commissioner certainly helps in some of those things. But you're right, farm bill is a huge issue. And one of the things that goes alongside the farm bill is, getting into trade policy and getting into how those commodity prices are dictated. And, and part of that is getting that open market available for uh, a lot of our farmers to be able to sell their goods. Um, and I know, you know, we're, we're going to take a quick break here in just a second. We've got a caller on, on hold right now. So we'll get to her after the break. Um, but just to kind of tee it up, we've got, you know, a lot of trade issues in place. We've had a, a major discussion throughout the 2016 campaign revolving around trade and, um, when we get back, I want to get your thoughts in, in terms of whether or not we're, we're on the right path or how we need to address things like NAFTA, TPP, um, and dealing with our neighbors to the north and south, uh, as well as across Pacific Ocean.
1: Absolutely. So important to our economies.
0: So this is Thomas Beedle filling in for Rob Port and the Rob Report here on AM 970 WDAY. Stick around after the break. back here on AM 970 on the Rob report we've got uh, former representative and current congressional candidate Ben Hansen sitting here and we have a caller on uh, on the phone uh, Karen uh, Karen go ahead you're on with uh, Thomas Beadle and Ben Hansen hello what do you think of the 40% tax cut to corporations and millionaires? that will result in a one and a half trillion dollar
1: deficit. Thank you for the question, Karen. very relevant to what we're talking about today. So uh, that I'm sure you're referring to the tax cut that was just passed and signed into law by President Trump. If I had been in Congress, I would have voted against that bill uh, because I don't feel that it cuts taxes to the majority of people in a way that would stimulate the economy. and I would vote against it based on almost on process alone. So, Tom, you're in the State House of Representatives in North Dakota right now, and I served there for four years. In the state of North Dakota, you can't write handwrite amendments onto a bill. You have to have them typed out so everyone can clearly tell what's on that bill and have public hearings where industry and individuals who can be affected by us can submit their testimony. All of those tests were failed at the federal level for a, for a massive tax reform uh, bill that uh Moves a lot of pieces about our tax code around. My understanding is we have an IRS tax code right now that's seventy-four thousand pages. This is going to add about another ten thousand. We've we have a few. That's this is my understanding. We have a few aspects of this bill that are that were very bad for North Dakota agriculture. It's bad for stu- They were bad for student loans. And I did not like the rush process here. I thought people should be able to come in, testify, talk about this, talk to people from North Dakota about it. What was done to co-ops with the uh, production tax credit was awful. Congressman Kramer should have offered at least an amendment to it. Senator Hoeven tried to fix it and has offered a solution, but it's a complication, not a simplification. Well, and, and the add to the deficit is also negative, I thought. So I would have been against it. Well,
0: and, and, and you know, I've, I've supported corporate tax cuts in North Dakota as they've come up for, for a vote. As have I. Uh, well, that's true. You have. Um, I support lowering our corporate tax structure, so I would have supported that that piece of this legislation. Uh, I would have supported making the individual cuts permanent as well. Um but you're right. The process was was a little problematic and, and it's fortunate we don't have handwritten amendments in North Dakota because my handwriting is awful and that wouldn't work so well. You mentioned <laughs> the the co-op issue. You, so you mentioned that the issue for co-ops as part of this tax bill, um, that's something that is getting a little bit of conversation going. You're right. Senator, Senator Hoven and Senator Thune co-sponsored amendments to address this. What's your take on the issue of as, associating co-ops?
1: Well, I'm glad they're at least there to offer something. So this is called DPAT. It's the production, uh, uh, deduction, production, um, tax credit. And it's section 199 in the IRS tax code and allows co-ops. And I think this is really cool in the state of North Dakota to pass along the savings they get from this deduction to their growers. Well, by passing the bill as the house had passed it, as said, as representative Kramer had voted for it, it would have immediately increased taxes for our farmers at a time when commodity prices have been down for four years in a row. I don't understand how in the world that's representing the people that you're supposed to be representing. I also don't know who in the world was asking for this. Why would you get rid of a tax deduction when you want to stimulate economic growth? It makes no sense. Now, Senators Hovind and Thune offered that uh amendment to allow co-ops to adjust how they are filed to get that deduction back. But wasn't this supposed to be a tax simplification plan, not a complication plan? I I I, I don't understand it. Well, and, and I think it's bad for our state and, and I wish representative Kramer had stood up for the people you' supposed to be representing there
0: well and I, I, my hope is that it, it is ultimately going to result in, in some simplification down the line but I don't I think the postcard mentality that people are having is a little little off-putting but speaking of the commodity prices and everything else um, let, let's shift o- over to trade policy a little bit 2016 we, we saw a real substantive shift where we, we wanted to go against uh, public persuasion started to go against things like the TPP partnership. Um, as well as NAFTA trade deals. NAFTA has been in place since the 90s. Uh, TPP uh, was negotiated more recently by the Obama administration. Um, But the Trump administration has been making some adjustments to that. What's your take on some of the current – Current things that they're doing to some of our trade policies well, and how that could impact North Dakota.
1: Let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about specifically how this would impact North Dakota. North Dakota is a large export state. We we export almost all of our petroleum, our coal products, our agriculture products. Eighty six percent of our exports go to Canada and Mexico, and we have currently, according to the U.S. Chamber, thirty three thousand jobs in North Dakota that are heavily reliant on agriculture product exports. The Trump administration is currently in monthly negotiations, There are eight rounds, I believe they just finished the fifth, it might be the fourth round, that's going to end in March, of NAFTA. That's the North American Free Trade Agreement involving Canada, America, and Mexico. This was put into place by George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton in the early 90s. It has been a subject of some controversy. There are many aspects to it. But right now, what's happening as far as our agriculture exporting product goes is these negotiations are being viewed as uh, the Trump administration's negotiations, a lot of them, are being viewed as poison pills for our Canadian, Mexican trading partners. Maybe forcing their hand to pull out from uh, pull out from this trade agreement, and what that could result in is an increase in tariffs. Some, in some cases, massive increase in tariffs. That's really going to put a hurt on our ability to export these egg products. So again, I don't know when it comes to agriculture who is asking for this, and I think our federal delegation and actually Senators Heitkamp and Hoven have both signed onto a letter. Stating that we need to hold agriculture harmless. I, I wish Representative Crane would step up and talk a little bit more about this and how it impact our state because it's going to infa- impact us so much that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says we'd be the third most hurt state if we pulled out of this.
0: Well, we got a caller coming in. I'm, I'm going to put him on, uh, I'll, Stephen, I'll get to you in just a second. But first, Ben, I mean, the argument could be made um, that, yes, you know, NAFTA, you're right, ag commodity impacts are, are huge for North Dakota. Uh, we certainly need to make sure that we have a, a market to export our oil, our ag, um, because we are a small population state. We need to export. That's that's crucial well, and, and to our the, economy.
1: The dollars are big. We, and, we export one billion dollars a week just last year.
0: That's yeah, that's pretty big numbers. Um, but during 2016, the discussion was really had and you saw it in the Rust Belt where trade policies like NAFTA and TPP were felt to be disadvantage, uh, disadvantageous to the American workers and and have really kept wages suppressed and everything. Uh do you, is there merit in, in that conversation about make, of that populist agenda of, of protecting our own selves and self-preservation?
1: There's merit to be had when we can help uh, stabilize and put on a path to, for exponential growth our blue-collar workers' wages. And that's not what I'm talking—what I was talking about here was our trade, was our ability to trade. Okay. There is a real—and it was ignored much to um, the you know, partial demise of Hillary Clinton's candidacy— Uh, economic fear on the part of people who have been working certain jobs for generations in manufacturing, blue-collar jobs that have been keeping our Rust Belt economies going that uh, Donald Trump was able to tap into as a presidential candidate. And I think those concerns, especially when it comes to wages decreasing or remaining stagnant, are very real and they need to be addressed. But with a real vision for the future, not with sloppy negotiations that are going to hurt things like egg products and aren't going to raise anyone else's wages.
0: Now, uh, Stephen, uh, we got about a minute here before we got a break. Uh, You're on with uh, on the Rob Report with Ben Hansen.
2: Yeah, I got two things for Mister Hansen. You know, Uh, does he live on a farm?
1: I do not live on a farm. I live in Fargo. Most of my family are farmers from across the state, so I've spent my fair share of time out there. But I don't mean to say that I, I am one myself.
2: Okay. Well, you know. Those farmers are only paying about $140 in property tax on their home quarter with their home on it. So that puts a lot of money into the economy. And the other thing with this uh, this uh, tax cuts, I mean, I'm going to tell you, within 10 years, there's going to be no people working on these farms. It's all going to be electronic. Um,
0: that- thank Thank you, Stephen. That's certainly a good point. We got about thirty seconds here, Ben. if you want to address the property tax issue with farmers and and the automation issue.
1: Uh, well, Tom, as you all know, property taxes are leveraged locally if they have low property taxes, maybe that's a good thing, but we should lower property taxes for everyone but i'm as I'm running for a federal office, we're talking about increases on production and on tariffs and exports, so that's what we were talking about there. As far as the whole farm operation going to robots, uh, I guess I don't think so. I think there's a lot of folks in North Dakota that I would say otherwise.
0: All right, Ben. Finishing up, this is the end of 2017 here. Where can people go to find out information about your campaign?
1: You can go to hanson for ND.com. That's H-A-N-S-O-N for ND.com because I'm a good Norwegian.
0: There you go. And I know he's pretty prolific on Twitter as well, so feel free to hit him up on social media. He'll certainly respond. Uh, this is Thomas Beadle sitting in for Rob Port here on the Rob Report on AM 970 WDAY. Uh, stick around after the break. We got uh, Levi Bachmeyer, one of Governor Bergham's policy advisors, joining us at the one o'clock hour, and we'll we'll take more of your calls and talk more of the news here after this break. Welcome back to AM 970 WDAY. Yeah. Thomas Beadle sitting in uh, for Rob Port here this afternoon. Uh, join the discussion, 293-9000, 888-970-9329. Um, or go ahead and email us at talk at WDAY.com or listen live at WDAY.com as well. Uh, speaking of WDAY.com, as well as our last guest, uh, Ben Hansen. Um there's an article up this morning uh from Renee Jean from the Wilson Herald uh about Congressman Kramer the the current incumbent uh, member of our uh US Congress on behalf of North Dakota uh in the seat that Ben Hansen's running for. So right now Ben is the only in, uh, candidate who's announced for this position. We expect that to change if if Ben ends up running this uh this seat and doesn't have any opposition we'll all be shocked and and something weird will have gone on. But uh, right now, the, the latest today is that following the rumor mill about whether or not Kramer is going to run for against Heidi Heitkamp. Politico last week named uh, this as one of the top 10 Senate races to look for in, in 2018. They think it's got a, a good shot of flipping from blue to red. And so many of the senior Republicans... Uh, in North Dakota, as well as some of the national Republicans, feel that Congressman Kramer might be the best shot in order to do that and take that seat back from from Senator Heitkamp. And so Kevin uh, this week admitted that he's not just flirting with the idea, but he's giving it serious consideration, announcing a decision sometime in January or February. And if he does, that'll be make it very interesting. Uh, current state Senator Tom Campbell's the only announced candidate for for U.S. Senate on the Republican side at this point. He's uh, spent considerable money, uh, considerable time, driven uh, tens of thousands of miles around the state, uh, meeting with individuals, meeting with different district groups, uh, holding a number of fundraisers, and and there's no escaping his ads when you're looking on social media or on uh, really any websites at all or anytime you turn on the TV. His ads are everywhere. So he's certainly making his, his name known. So that'll start up an interesting conversation about whether or not Senator Campbell, if Kevin announces, which Kevin's got a a decent war chest behind him. He's shown the ability to fundraise, and he's ran statewide now five or six times. Uh, More than that, he's seven or eight times now after his last couple of congressional races. Uh, So that's going to set up whether or not Senator Campbell thinks that he could challenge Kevin at the convention, or as Kevin showed in 2012, he doesn't really care about the convention process. He'd go straight to the primary, and whether Senator Campbell has done enough in order to lay the groundwork to be able to beat uh, Kevin for a primary. Now, if he can't, if he doesn't think that he would have that momentum to to take on Congressman Kramer, which I know the two, the, the, uh, both those gentlemen, and I know they're friends, so I, I don't imagine that would be any you know any hatred between them or or any negative campaigning. They might even have an arrangement in place where if Kevin does announce, uh, uh, Senator Campbell might drop down. I don't think that's what he would want to do. I think everyone would, would rather be in the Senate than in the House, but that's going to set up an interesting scenario because if if Kramer jumps to the Senate and, and Campbell does stick with it, which all intentions look like he would uh, because of the, the considerable investment he's already made in there, how much time he's been spending going after Heidi, aligning uh, himself with Trump and everything there. Um, that'll make for a very, very contentious Republican primary. And we already know we're going to have another contested Republican primary or, or at least convention for the secretary of state race. Uh, and, and we could possibly see it for the tax commissioner race and somewhere else as well. Um, it's really going to be a lot of discussion, a lot of momentum uh, uh, and conversation happening on the Republican side, when right now the Democratic side is pretty silent. But so we're, we're either going to see a lot of money spent in this in the primary and convention process by Republicans, or there's going to be a handshake arrangement where maybe uh, maybe Campbell will drop down to the Senate all right, drop down to the, to Congress, and then he'll be running against Ben Hansen, in which case he might need to recut some of his ads and everything, but you can certainly make that happen. But that's all going to set up for a pretty interesting spring of 18. I know the Democratic conventions into March uh, up in Grand Forks and the Republican conventions first week of April up in Grand Forks. And so- you're going to see, and Congressman Kramer says his announcement, uh, he'll announce his decision sometime in January or February. Originally, it was going to be sometime by the end of 17, but he's pushed that back quite a bit. But really, logistically, uh, for any sort of race coming up in in 2018, we're going to have to see all the candidates from both parties for, for really any positions really start to announce themselves here in January. And the reason for that is because, starting in end of January and beginning of February is when you have all the district conventions all across the state where they put out their, their delegates to the conventions. They'll put out their nominees. And this is the prime time for these candidates to get out there, uh, see a large cluster of, of partisan individuals from both political persuasions, uh, where they'll get together and, and really decide on, you know, the policy platforms, the resolutions, the the who's going to be representing you as the 1,000 people the Democrats will have up in Grand Forks or the 2,000 people the Republicans will have in Grand Forks. Um, and, and so this is the best chance for these candidates to get some name recognition for themselves. So I would really look to see uh, for some of this stuff to, to really liven up here soon. But for the moment, uh, Kramer hasn't, hasn't tipped his cards. I, I'm starting to think he's going to jump for the Senate. Uh, he's been pretty coy. I know, I know Campbell... When I've spoken with him privately, he says that he doesn't see any indication that Kevin's going to jump up there. But I think the last couple of weeks, plus the, the Heidi's vote on the tax bill, uh, have made her possibly more vulnerable, possibly uh, easier for him to, to get the president to go, you know, walk back his comments before about her being such a, a nice woman and saying that he likes Heidi. This this might be a way that uh, Trump will, will, will help step in and maybe support uh Kramer over this uh, since he has a relationship. I don't believe Senator Campbell has one with the president, um, even though they have similar backgrounds from the businessman uh, perspective and everything else. So it's going to be make for a very interesting one to watch and, and to see who ultimately ends up coming in against Ben Hansen is going to be interesting to watch as well. You can Like Ben said when he was on before, you can certainly find out more about him at Hansen4nd.com. Uh, I know Tom Campbell's got his website, TomForNorthDakota.com. I believe is his. Uh, both of them. You can find them on Twitter. Find them on Facebook. They have all sorts of information about that. And and we'll certainly see what uh, what Congressman Kramer does here in the near future. Uh, speaking of whoever ends up out, winning out in eighteen and and getting out to D.C. is going to have to deal with the most prolific tweeter that we have in the U.S. and that's our current president. He's been been active on Twitter again today as well. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting, and, and we talked. Uh, I haven't really talked about this before, is look at the post office. And right now, Amazon, whenever they ship a package and the U.S. post office delivers it, the post office loses over a dollar, like a dollar sixty per package based on something that came out of the Washington Post today. Uh, I don't know how we've gotten into the situation where we have such inefficiencies in D.C. that we're losing money that, on every single package that's being delivered like that. But that's certainly the case right now. And, and the president's going after that, and the, the president's going after – uh, DACA and the wall saying that he's, he's already told the Democrats there's not going to be anything on, on DACA and the Dreamers uh, without the wall being needed and without in- chain, chain migration and the lottery system. So I know immigration, even though infrastructure is one of his big keys for the next year, immigration and, and now apparently the post office are all right in the crosshairs for the president and this administration as we move towards the next congressional year the top of the one o'clock hour, we're going to have Levi Bachmeyer, one of the senior policy advisors for Governor Bergham joining us. Make sure to, uh, to, to stay tuned for that. Get engaged, wday.com. Uh, email us at talk at wday.com or call in 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Uh, Representative Thomas Beadle sitting in here for Rob Port this afternoon. Uh, I will be back here uh, right after the break. Come home in the morning I go to bed feeling this 70 WDAY on the Rob Report. Thomas Beadle sitting in for Rob Port. I had to let that song go a little long uh, for the intro here. Every time I hear it, it immediately makes me think of uh, being up for fighting Sioux hockey games. Now fighting Hawks hockey games. Uh, but for a long time, that was one of the big pump-up songs that they would use in the in the arena, especially at the old Ralph, uh, to get the fans really into it. And, it's just it's one of those nice memories that, that you got to got to have. And it's, whenever a song comes on, it just gives you that feeling. You got to You got to roll with it. So I just got a news alert popping up from the Associated Press. If anyone who checked out CNN this morning um, or, or any of the other uh, major news organizations, uh, one of the top stories was an overnight blaze in New York, De- uh, deadliest blaze that's happened in New York City in over a decade uh, where we've had. Uh, I think it was 20 people were were killed in in this fire that took place uh, I'm sorry, ten people killed at it anyways uh the main thing about it is is this fire was started by a three and a half year old toddler who was playing with a stove uh in in his uh, his mother's apartment he and he accidentally lit the lit the fire uh it killed a dozen people as smokes and flames uh, swept up the stairwell in minutes and blocked the main route to safety causing people to have to jump out into the frigid air and go down fire escapes and everything else. And I think that just kind of serves as a very important reminder especially as we're seeing a bunch of negative temps creep in here this weekend that there is a lot of fire hazards out there and we need to be extra careful uh, and make sure that we're we're you know children are being watched and and you know pets are being watched because if they're near fireplaces or anything like that it, it, they can certainly drag a blanket or something in the way that might get in the, and caught in a space heater or something and, and cause all sorts of issues. I know the forum had a poll on uh, about two days ago about whether or not you're concerned with fire safety during the winter months. And I think this, this example out of New York really just shows us that we all should be. We all should certainly take precaution, take care about that, because a three-and-a-half-year-old uh, killing a dozen people is uh, on accident is, is not really the way that you want to start the new year. Um, and, and we need to all make sure that we take care of ourselves that way. Uh, similarly, make sure you're you're bundled up and, and keeping track of all your space heaters and everything else. Uh, it's supposed to be high of negative 18 on uh, or low of negative 18 on Monday, uh, high of negative one. So we're not really getting any uh, any relief from the cold that we've had out there right now. I think tonight the low is negative 25. So so any you know we're we're all going to have space heaters, electric fireplaces, whatever going on and and make sure you're extra safe with that. So at the top of the one o'clock hour, I'm excited for this conversation. We're, we're going to have Levi Bachmeyer on. He's not a, no, a well-known name across North Dakota, uh, but he's certainly one of the, the up-and-coming policy uh, gurus in the state. Uh, he came on as, as Governor Burgum's policy advisor. He's a former teacher. He's a, a West Fargo high graduate, uh, worked in and. Uh, as a teacher in tribal college area or in the tribal areas down at standing rock and he's really had an interesting year so whether it's with dapple uh, he was heavily involved in the, in the Dakota access pipeline dispute when governor Bergham took over he was heavily involved in some of the education initiatives and innovation reforms uh, that the governor's been pushing um, and he was involved with with Doug throughout the campaign process and then uh, then came in and, and has been one of really is top two or three individuals in his administration in terms of the policy perspective and actually getting things done. So I'm excited to have Levi here in studio here and in, in, uh, right at the top of the one o'clock hour. Uh, please you know, email in questions, uh, talk at WDAY.com or, or give us a call at 712939000. Uh, if you want to have any questions for, for Levi and want to talk about uh, anything that Governor bergham has been been really working on or questions for Levi and his experience. As being one of the behind-the-scenes guys in the governor's administration, I can tell you from a legislative perspective, this was my fourth legislative session. I was first elected in 2010. I represent District 27 down in South Fargo. Uh, serve alongside Senator John Casper. Serve alongside uh, Representative Randy Baining down in that District 27 seat. And one of the things that uh, one of the things that we have realized is this governor had a very different background, very different attitude coming in than uh, than we had the last couple of sessions, and the last couple of governors. I didn't have the opportunity to serve with with Hoven while he was governor. He was elected to the U.S. Senate the same cycle that I was first elected to the legislature. But I got to work with Governor Dalrymple very closely and see a lot of uh, Hoven's policies come through and then see a lot of Do- uh, Governor Dalrymple's uh, fingerprints get laid in there. And and Dalrymple really exemplified some of the old guard Republican here in North Dakota uh, good and bad. He, he, he really had a lot of things uh, that he was able to bring to the table from an experience perspective, from a knowledge-based perspective. I know my first legislative session talking with uh, Keith Kempinek, one of the senior members on the appropriations committee, he said that when, when Hovind was governor and and they were going into the appropriations process and were, trying to decide, you know, where where some of the slush money was, where they can do some certain projects, maybe some legislative priority projects where they could always go into the basement and find some cream cans they could dig up with some cash into them. By the time Dalrymple became governor and he was crafting his own budget, because he was the former appropriations guy and everything else, he knew where every single one of those cans were buried. And and in his first budget, it was such a tangled web of, of funding that the appropriations committee's hands were, were tied and they weren't able to do anything. He was just that much of a master manipulator and and had everything down in North Dakota pat. Uh, but he also had a lot of the old entrenchment. He was he, he had been working in, in the government for North Dakota for 20, 30 years, had had heavily involvement in a lot of policy stuff that was done, and so a lot of the initiatives he led were were retreads of older initiatives that had taken place or expansions of ones that they had seen successful. And so really with the, the change that we saw this legislative session is a lot of the stuff we had counted on, a lot of the stuff we've been pushing forward, didn't get nearly as much traction because we had a new guard in town, uh, new, the new sheriff who really had different perspective, different areas that he wanted to focus on, and uh, uh, brought a lot of new things to the table. And so it, it's made it very interesting for the legislature working with Governor Burgum this last cycle. So looking forward to this conversation with Levi, uh, talking a little bit about the first uh, year in review for the Burgum administration. Well, stick, uh, stick around, 970-WDAY. Give us a call, 293-9000. And we'll be back after the break. Welcome back to AM 970 WDAY, the Rob Report. Thomas Beadle sitting in for Rob Port this afternoon on the last show of 2017. As we, we get set to turn the calendar and, and uh, turn the page onto the, new, in the next year, uh, this is a perfect opportunity to kind of look year in review and see what's been going on in North Dakota, what's been going on in the state, and to see uh, what's been happening with the first year under the Governor Burgum administration. So I'm happy. Uh, to be joined this afternoon now by Levi Bachmeyer, one of the senior policy advisors for Governor Bergham, one of the the young guys in the capitol walking around in skinny jeans and and getting kicked off the floor of the capitol so Levi thanks for joining representative Beetle, honored to be here now I had to throw out uh there 's the skinny jeans comment because between you and uh one of the other senior policy advisors uh, uh Robert loft the third uh we really had uh, an a interesting new fashion statement in the capital this year where where you guys decided to finally bring you know trendy clothing to to bismarck where everyone else was always wearing you know black suits and and really ill-fitting clothing uh you really had some fashion statements and turned some heads right away but but that kind of helped you guys uh, uh make a name for yourselves right off the bat and show that there's kind of a new mentality in bismarck and and we're moving into a new trendy direction so uh, how did you feel you were welcomed out in Bismarck this year?
2: It was, it was great. The, uh, the tight pants caucus, as it was referred to, uh, initially started out as a, as a small group, but I heard at one of the roasts at the end of the legislative session um, that it was regarded in, it, somewhat positively. So we'll take that as, as a sign of, uh, of a job well done for the, for the first legislative session. But, but it was great. Uh, moving out to, to Bismarck last December, uh, into the governor's office, working with the legislature through the 65th, uh, regular assembly was, was a wonderful experience. Uh, we learned a lot, uh, did a lot of hard work and, and I think we're all really pleased with, with what, uh, happened in 2017.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself too, Levi. I mean, you're, this was your first session working with, with governor Burgum. Um, but you're, you're a local boy here to the Fargo, Moorhead, West Fargo area, uh, background in education, Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you were able to bring to the table to the governor's office.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, born and raised in West Fargo, proud uh, West Fargo Packer graduate uh, in 2010, went to Concordia here just across the river to study education. And before uh, joining the governor's campaign in 2016, I was a high school social studies teacher. So began my career down in South Dakota, actually teaching on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Where I was a high school uh, social studies teacher for a for a very small high school, Crazy Horse School, had about seventy seventy five students. Uh, so that meant that I was teaching everything: geography, world history, government. Um, I had it all. Got to coach football, track and field. Had a wonderful time, um, and it's it's really grounded the experiences that I've had in the in the governor's office, where one of my main uh, areas of policy is K twelve education.
0: Absolutely, and and one of the things that uh, came out of this legislative session with regards to K-12 education is we, we looked at some opportunities where we can take some of the burdens and the shackles off some of our teachers. Um, we obviously all have the conversation around Common Core and standardized testing and everything, but we also have a lot of limitations in there that previously were, were restricting teachers from experimenting in the classroom and, and bringing new technologies and new things into the fold. Um, And I know you were pretty instrumental in in leading some of those efforts. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Governor Burgum's innovation initiative and what you guys were able to to get done?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Senate Bill 2186 was a huge win for K-12 education in North Dakota. Great collaborative effort between DPI, Superintendent Baszler and her leadership, legislative leadership, both in the House and the Senate, the governor's office. I mean, this was one where people came together and said this is the right thing to do for schools. Uh, the, the bill in a nutshell essentially allows school districts to come together to craft a plan of what they want their educational system to look like in their district. Do they want to move away from seat time requirements? Do they want to change the way uh, the credentials that that high school students need to have before they're deemed uh, graduates? You know, all, all of these things that we assume to be requirements of, of you know, leaving high school at 18, we wanted we want local school districts to ask the questions, what do we want from our students in the 21st century? How can we make education more relevant? How can we better equip students with skills, dispositions, and knowledge as they enter the workforce? And and so what the bill does is is for the districts that put those plans together, submit it to the, the superintendent of public instruction for review. They're able to get waivers to various sections of state code that would allow them to, to implement these plans. And so we're Really excited to see some of the conversations that have stemmed uh, from the bill and, and really look forward to um, seeing what gets submitted. We've had one so far, and and we're hoping that we see, you know, one for every school district in, in the grade state.
0: So wh- while you were over at West Fargo and going through your education there, um, was the STEM school uh, – ha- had that started at that point over in West Fargo public school system or is that did that come after your time?
2: Uh, that came after my time. But I think a good example of, you know, schools have been innovating, you know, for for as long as they've been in existence. Absolutely. And so I think the goal is, you know, what can we do at state government level to better empower these schools, to build on those best practices? That was one that uh, the, the STEM model at West Fargo that kind of served as an inspiration. How do we make it easier for schools to do that? There are certainly some barriers um, some community buy-in and and various you know processes that that West Fargo had to go through to to you know get that ball rolling. So what can we learn from that process and make it easier for schools that really want to take the leap?
0: Well, and I know I mean the STEM school over West Fargo Public Schools has been a tremendous success. They've they've had a f- absolutely fantastic results in in great uh math and science and and engineering and computer programming and all all sorts of Uh, tremendous accomplishments coming out of there. So I think that is truly a model for the state. I know a couple of years ago, a few sessions ago, former Representative Blair Thorson had a bill to allow uh, school districts to tweaks we, in, in in century code right now we have stipulations you know you need to have your four english credits right. to graduate high school uh your, your certain amount of math credit certain amount of science credits etc and i know he had a bill to allow uh a computer science class computer programming class to, to supplement and replace a, a math credit right. for graduation um and that really started a lot of the conversation going around computer science computer programming in in the legislature and amongst our schools and uh this uh, just during this last legislative session I'd, i swear probably two different weeks we had the the great hall filled with elementary school kids coming in there middle school kids coming in there that were doing all this little blockchain coding systems where they're you know running little uh, robots around the the floor of the of the great hall of the Capitol, showing off some of their computer programming skills and and that, that's really what a lot of what, what Governor Burgum's talking about, right, is is kind of these new ways to get engagement for the classroom and get students actively involved and, and create active learning instead of just sitting back and, and listening to the teacher's lecture and, and take down the notes. But but rather this new engagement.
2: Uh, absolutely. And, and And what various tools and systems can we utilize to better empower teachers? I mean, teachers are the fundamental component of education. They're the facilitator of knowledge acquisition. They're the facilitator of skill development. I mean, they play just a critically important role in the development of, of our young people. But how do we better, you know, enable those teachers to utilize technology like, you know, coding software where they're facilitating that learning as, as opposed to being expected to directly, you know, engage students and say on the whiteboard, you know, this is how you write a certain line of code. Instead, they're walking around to 15, 20 different kids doing it all at once, all in different places, running into different questions, acting more as a coach, right, as they're trying to navigate learning a specific skill than telling every kid at one time, we're doing this right now. And okay. it's, it's just it's, it's a, it's a better way to do it, and it, it, it empowers teachers. And
0: the same shift is starting to take place in higher education as well. I mean, we're, we're seeing that um, with the way that the new... Uh, STEM building at NDSU was crafted. It set up the the classrooms in this, you know, all inclusive learning environment, right. and 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 really allowed everyone to flow. and And that's kind of where the next step is of of getting more of this innovation. Is is and once these kids get all the programming and everything down and and get acclimated to this new environment, then really they can fully take advantage of some of the resources that we have in our higher education system.
2: Absolutely, and it's it's not only on campus, but both in higher education and K twelve. I mean, how do we better collaborate? With all of the organizations and businesses in our community, how do we how do we do a better job of both getting students out into our businesses, into our organizations, into our nonprofits, uh, learning skills, contributing something of value and getting credit for it? Because right now, you know, it was students who would try to put their study hall at the last hour of the day so they could start, you know, working. I was one of them. Right. At 245 instead of 330. And the school didn't recognize that, hey, you're learning, you're learning incredible, you know, some incredibly important skills. How do we better catalog that, create the competencies that we want high school seniors, you know, to graduate with and then figure out how do we how do we recognize those? Does it just have to be teachers? Can we get partnerships with businesses? Uh, I mean, there's there's some really exciting models. Uh, Our career and technical education department here in North Dakota, uh, you know, has a rubric career ready practices. That allows teachers, uh, community leaders and, and business leaders to, to work around rubrics, which, you know, are trying to build specific skills that make students career ready.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's as part of the discussion about what Governor Bergen has been working on. We'll have more with Levi after the break. Join the discussion here at AM 970 WDAY. Uh, call us at 293-9000 or talk at WDAY.com. And we'll be back with more with, with Levi right after this. Ooh, Welcome back, AM 970 WDAY. Thomas Beadle sitting in here for Rob Port here on The Rob Report with Levi Bachmeyer, one of the policy advisors for Governor Burgum. Uh, just, just wrapped up a, a good conversation about education. If you're not familiar with what's going on with the innovation in education in North Dakota, uh, I highly encourage you to, to, reach, out to your, your, kids, uh, reach out to the teachers of your kids, reach out to the students that you have and see what's going on. There's a lot of really cool things happening. Um, all over our education system from from K-12 to higher education. Uh, It's really a phenomenal conversation. But, Levi, one of the things I wanted to touch on here with you in studio today is you had given a uh, presentation on behalf of the governor's office here just uh, a week or so ago um, to the FM Diversion Authority. Now, Fargo flood protection is obviously one of the biggest issues for the valley and one of the biggest issues for the state. Uh, and really has been for well over a decade now. We're starting to see some dirt move in some areas of the community. We're starting to see some some traction uh, and get, providing that protection. And with uh, the flood wall downtown being being done finished now, um, we're getting a little bit of relief, but it's far from done. So, so, what can you tell us about where we're at on the diversion and, and kind of what the next steps are?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say at this point, I I feel confident that there's a, a collaborative path forward. We're not done. You know, the, the final um, alignment hasn't been, you know, definitively decided upon. I mean, I, I think it's important, to, you know, to put all this in context. This, you know, most people know that this is a conversation that's been going on for a decade. And, you know, the, the governor's office, you know, really got involved in September after the injunction came out uh, out of Minnesota. And I think, you know, we started asking ourselves the question, you know, what, what role you know, d- does the governor's office have in, in moving this conversation forward? The Diversion Authority has been working on this for a very long time, but it, it definitely seems like we've reached a stalemate. And, you know, the, it, was, it looked like we had two paths moving forward. One was, was uh, a path of litigation going through the, the court system, you know, appeals, in, injunctions. Um, and, and trying to see who, who would win there. The first the first decision wasn't favorable for the diversion authority. And, and so the you know, what's what's the other route? Well, let's see what the art of the possible is and let's and let's go the collaborative route. And so, you know, late September, early October. The two governors got together on on the phone and said, hey, you know, we agree that this is this is an important issue. And we want to see what we can do to, you know, move the ball forward. And So they, they agreed to start a task force, 16-member task force, eight members from Minnesota, eight members from North Dakota, and see what are, what are the areas of consensus that we can identify to help, you know, move this process forward.
0: Well, and, and that conversation has been going on for a while. I mean, we in the legislature uh, a few sessions ago, we appropriated the money or set aside the money um, for flood protection in Fargo, we we passed uh, uh, some you know, resolutions and, and some funding riders that basically indicated that we'll cover the state share. Uh, the Fargo Fargo and Cass County both had sales tax uh, uh, measures passed in order to to fund the local portion of the share for for the diversion, and we we really felt that everything here was just waiting on federal. It was waiting on the Army Corps of Engineers, is waiting on the federal government, waiting on that D.C. appropriation. Uh, we had, uh, a, I believe, an approval for the process for, from the federal, but we never actually got the funding appropriated at, at this point. And then that's where the Minnesota stuff kind of stepped in and, and delayed a lot of that from taking place. So, you know, realistically, what sort of timeline do we think we can possibly look at before some of this stuff might get
2: resolved? You know, I I think that's a good question. I mean, we're optimistic. Uh, first quarter of 2018, we'll really see some some positive movement. Uh, you know, as I was saying, the the task force was established in October. Both governors set the ambitious date of December 15th to you know wrapping up their work. The final task force meeting was held on December 11th. They didn't define the specific, you know, diversion channel that they had wanted, but they essentially came up with a, a list of recommendations that they wanted to, to share with the diversion authority to, to move the process forward. And most importantly, continue the dialogue with the Minnesota DNR.
0: Well, and, and for those that, that don't know what the holdup has been and, and what's been driving it, um, really, the, the, based on the engineering and the design and everything for this, the, the way that the diversion is laid out ends up having a staging area. Uh, for the water and for, and for for where in the event of a of a hundred year five hundred year flood event which which happens way more frequently than one hundred or five hundred years unfortunately uh, in the event of of, of um, a catastrophic flood or a significant flood water ends up getting backed up and and we know a large portion of of the staging area is on the North Dakota side the upstream coalition and, and the groups down in Richland County um, have certainly been vocal about that but the minnesota animosity to it and the and the and everything is that we wanted them to pay a, a significant chunk of the project 100 million dollars or so which is not a significant chunk but 5% or so of the project uh, but they were going to have some impacts as well under the minnesota side uh, and so they really wanted to make sure that they were getting the value the the benefit analysis done appropriately so that for what they were going to be impacted was uh, fairly compensated by the economic gain that they would get as a result of, of the project is that a fair assessment for what's caused the delay on the Minnesota side?
2: Yeah, I think that's part of it and, and, and also our understanding of, of how the DNR interpreted the governance structure that was mm-hmm. set up through the diversion authority that subjected the the project since it you know the red straddles our two states uh, to the laws uh, that govern permitting in Minnesota. And so we're, we're kind of we're dealing with a with a dual permit issue where this project has to be not only approved in in North Dakota in our state engineers office, but also with the Minnesota DNR. And so making sure that we c- construct a project that can thread both needles um, has it's presented, you know, an added challenge doing flood control on on this at, at this scale is is hard enough, you know, with with one state you know, set of regulations. But we're, we're trying to do it with two.
0: Do we have any concerns with uh, the Canadian government in dealing with that? Because the Red River, any any water that we displace here, anything, right. any runoff that goes into the river here ultimately flows up to Canada. Um, has, has that been a concerning factor with this? Or is, is that more on the water supply issue for the Red River Valley? Uh,
2: it, it's both. Absolutely. I mean, Canada sent a letter to our office in early December uh, outlining their grievances with the conversations on the Red River Valley water supply project. So on one hand, we're, while we're trying to divert water around Fargo-Mired, we're also trying to get water uh, in the event of a drought. But Canada, Canada's watching, right? a- absolutely. And so that's certainly one of the considerations that the that the task force had to weigh when they're considering both what are what's the structural component of this project, where does the embankment structure go, but also what are some of the operational components, how much how many, you know, CFS? What? How much water do we allow through town? And what are some of the associated impacts at the Canadian border? That's those are all questions um, that that we know Canada is interested in.
0: And those are all questions that we need to make sure we have good, good, clean answers for. Uh, Levi, stick around. We'll have more with with uh, Levi Bachmeyer here after the break here on the Rob Report. Thomas Beadle sitting in for Rob Port here on AM 970, 293-9000. If you want to get involved in the conversation, and we'll be back after this. <laughs> We are back here on AM 970 WDAY. Thomas Beadle sitting in uh, for Rob Port this afternoon. Join the conversation 293-9000. Talk at WDAY.com. Levi, uh, one of the things that really hit you guys right away at the start of this legislative session was you had to deal with something that no other governors really had to deal with uh, in modern history, Uh, especially in North Dakota. We haven't had it. And that's the code access pipeline protests. We had tens of thousands of people flock into the state from all over the country protesting a federal project that was on federal land and and federally permitted. And the state got in here trying to protect private property and and, uh, make sure that we didn't have severe impacts environmentally, make sure we didn't have severe impacts on personal property, uh, on private property all over uh, the, the corridor that was there. And that really took a lot of focus and a lot of energy from the governor's administration right away, and you were right in the thick of that. So, so really, what did you guys learn from that, and and what was, how did that impact you guys at the start of the administration, uh, administrative term?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from minute one, you know, midnight on December fifteenth, when when the governor officially you know became the governor, uh, until March first, when the last camp. Uh, On the reservation was was cleared. I mean this was a full-time job that consumed You know much of the attention of of the governor um, Consumed most of of my time as this was just you know a huge priority for for our office to make sure that That the protest was resolved peacefully and that the rule of law was restored to Every square foot of the state of North Dakota. I mean this was the the largest protest in, in the history of North Dakota and, and, you know, you look at everything that, that made the protest what it was, steeped in, in, in history, uh, steeped in, you know, varying opinions about the future of the carbon economy. I mean, it, it was incredible. I mean, thinking back to those last three weeks before the, the protest concluded, I mean, I, I practically lived out there myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and hearing the stories from some protesters about what, what their motivations were, what their aspirations were. I mean, there were a million and one reasons that people had to be out there on, on the side of, of highway 1806. And it, it was just an incredible process to follow. And I mean, you just really can't say enough about all of the work, uh, that, that was done, you know, by, by so many different agencies. I mean, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but the, the hundreds and thousands of, of people that pitched in to, to ensure that not a single person was killed as a result of confrontation between protesters uh, and and law enforcement. I mean, this was continually billed as a as a peaceful protest, but we we know that that was not the case. And so I, I you know the respect level that that was developed, or you know that I have for for Sheriff Kirkbyer, uh, you know Colonel Gerhardt and and the adjutant General Dorman uh, for for their leadership to to bring this to a peaceful resolution was just it was incredible. Well,
0: not only that. I mean, you 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 touched on it with the protesters. I mean, it was wasn't anything but violent. I mean, obviously the videos of the water cannons that they say and the rubber bullets and all that um, coming from the the side of the sheriffs and everything that the protesters viewed that as as being, you know, violence coming from the state side, but you also had the the pro uh, the the propane tanks that were being embedded into hay bales and and lit on fire and and stuff like that that, that really caused a lot of, you know, issues coming from the protester side and then the weather was a major component as well right. we had numerous blizzards that came in uh we had people falling through the ice we had you know we had issues uh with people in the middle of a blizzard driving 80 miles an hour down this highway and, and almost crashing into the barricades that are in place and and causing the the sh- the sheriffs and the deputies to scramble out of the way to not be hit because people were losing control of their vehicles because they're coming in from all over the country and didn't know how to deal with North Dakota winter. Um, and so you, you had to deal with a Herculean effort just making sure resources were there so even the protesters wouldn't be starved out or, or frozen out in a blizzard.
2: Right. I mean, this was, this was you know part uh, a mission of diplomacy and, and largely a huge, huge logistical undertaking. I mean, from making sure that everyone had the resources that they needed to protect residents both in Morton and Sioux County, and and to ensure that when when the time came, and that for those protesters who needed to leave, that they had uh, the means to do so, whether it was a bus pass, whether it, you know whatever it might be. I mean, our goal was to get that area cleared. The governor said right away that this was not a situation that we would be able to arrest our way out of. I mean, you can't you can't put thousands of people in jail here, especially in the not state of Morton North County. Especially right.
0: when you, we you don't have nearly the capacity uh, to to have that many inmates in there. And I think one of the things that should be, be kept in mind is by the end of the protests and, and really by the time they started ramping up and got as big as they were, even the, the local tribal uh, membership and tribal leadership really was, was starting to become at odds with a lot of the protesters that had come in. They were, they were wanting to, this to get resolved. They were wanting to remain peacefully. But frankly, they lost control. The, they, the chairman had, had kind of called in the cavalry to bring in a lot of people in here to help protest. But it got bigger than they could handle, and, and it didn't take too long for tribal leadership to start voting to get a lot of these protesters out of there.
2: And I, and I think that that's an incredibly important point to raise, that, that then-Chairman Archambault had, had asked protesters to leave in December after the initial announcement that came out of the then-President Obama's White House about the status of the pipeline. He, he asked people to leave and continued that request uh, until the pipeline's conclusion. and and it's it's worth noting that it wasn't only you know you know tribal leadership. you know one of the you know one of the first things that the governor did was he wanted to listen to yep. to what the impacts were, the impacts to law enforcement, the impacts to ranchers in Southern Morton County, the impacts to cannonball residents. And so whether it was going out to Julie Ellingson's farm to hear about you know what what people were experiencing people, yep. you know, horses riding through you know fields in their backyards at all hours of the night, to going down to the, the Cannonball Community Center and, and asking, you know, Standing Rock tribal members, you know, what is this protest doing to your community? And, and you know, what we were amazed was, was the, the response was the same. That is, it's displacing, you know, our opportunity to go about living, you know, life the way we want. I, I mean, make no mistake about it. I mean, there were very different opinions on Absolutely. the level of support for the pipeline. But Absolutely. whether or not people still wanted wanted the protesters there, I mean, th- this was this was not uh, this was not a Standing Rock versus state of North Dakota issue at that point. Everybody wanted the well, protesters to go. You home. can
0: disagree with a project and disagree politically without it devolving into chaos. And I think one of the things to remember about this, and the reason why I brought up that the chairman was uh, had been asking them to leave, and the tribal leadership asked them to leave, is just to, to point out that you know we don't need to always stand at odds with our native brethren in North Dakota. That you know as much animosity as was around at that time, it wasn't all of an us versus them because really they wanted to work with us. It, was, it just had gotten out of control because of some, some forces that were bigger than they were. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, but now, I mean, to date, the, the pipeline's up, it's operational, oil's back up uh, around 60 barrels where it keeps creeping at. And, and one of the noticeable differences is we have far fewer oil trucks uh, and, and uh, oil uh, cars on the train lines. Um, as we had prior to this. So so clearly it's made the impact positively from an infrastructure perspective in North Dakota and, and allowing those, those uh, logistical uh, challenges that we were facing to, to be abated. But more, well, Levi, we're going to have more with you after the break. Stick around here on uh, The Rob Report, uh, AM 970 WDAY. We are back here on AM 970 WDAY. Uh, Representative Thomas Beadle sitting in here for Rob Port this afternoon uh, as we're wrapping up uh, 2017 and looking in the rearview mirror to see uh, kind of recapping this year with with Levi Bachmeyer, one of the senior policy advisors for Governor Burgum, one of the the leading voices uh, within his administration, a couple of young guys there um, that that are really helping shape uh, the future of North Dakota policy. And, and keep this administration hip, and uh, and keep the administration uh, uh, on the cutting edge of technology and innovation. Uh, I'm Levi, we talked a little education, we talked a little diversion, talked a little DAPL, uh, but there's plenty of other accomplishments that Governor Bergham's office has been able to get, get across this year, um, and some things that they really want to hang their hat on. Uh, tell us a little bit more about kind of what kept the governor's office busy this year.
2: Yeah, I mean, 2017 was an incredible year, and we're immensely excited to, to get to work in, in 2018. You know, thinking back to the past year, the, the legislative session went by in a blur, you know, the government was a blink of an eye for you guys. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, our, our first session learning a lot, working together with, with tremendous, you know, incredible legislators in, in both chambers. And I think we did, uh, we passed some, some really meaningful, uh, some bills took out, you know, $1.7 billion out of a $6 billion economy without raising taxes and so there's just so much to be, you know, I think proud of of coming out of session, um, you know, when when things wrapped up on on day 77. But not only that, you know, we talked about DAPL, which, you know, was was going on during the legislative session. You know, shortly thereafter, we got into drought season and the governor was was very engaged. Absolutely. On, on that issue, doing, you know, doing town halls across western North Dakota, hearing from farmers, working with with Sonny Purdue in the Department of, of Agriculture uh, at, you know, in the in the Trump administration to To see what can be done, you know, to provide some from r- relief for for our farmers. So it was, it was, it was one thing, you know, to to the next thing, to the next thing. You sprinkle in, you know, recovery reinvented the governor's summit on innovative education. You know, the the task force that have have been established. I mean, it's been it's been a busy year, and a lot of these projects will continue into into the new year. So we're just incredibly excited to continue to serve the people in North Dakota.
0: Well, and I th- and I really do think. I mean, uh, I mentioned it, you know before you came on about some of the innovation Governor Burgum's led. He, re- he really has uh, changed the mold from where Governor Dalrymple was a little bit before. Governor Dalrymple did some tremendously great things, but Burgum brought in a different perspective and some different ways of doing things. And and really that first year, especially uh, the first half of the session, with, because of DAPL and because of some of the other stuff, you guys were drinking from a fire hose. You were weren't really able to be as engaged in the legislative process until really halftime uh for for the session um and and you certainly came on strong towards the end and and we started to to make you know governor burgum's you know fingerprints uh, felt a little more on some of the different policies that we were able to ultimately pass and and that he was able to sign into law uh but you really spent most of the year laying the foundation i mean this is about a quarter of the way through governor burgum's administration now uh, through his first term uh, and really everything this Year was just laying the building blocks to grow and, and expand and and really see the impacts coming in years two, three, and four. W- would you say that's correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was there was you know the governor did an incredible amount of leading in 2017. Whether it was the drought, whether it was DAPL, And he did was it with a, gratitude too. A, a plenty of gratitude, but you know we're also always learning. And so as as we look ahead to 2018, you know, you know the the campaign I think was defined as as listening, understanding what the needs, the aspirations, the hopes are of you know citizens across the state. And, and making the transition into the governor's office last December. It's how do, how do we you know, actualize those you know, from day one, and how do we continue to learn uh, about you know, what makes state government tick? How can we reinvent government to make it more responsive to taxpayers? And that's a process that's ongoing. We're learning every day, uh, and we're you know, excited to continue to dig in. into to your point, you know, get more involved in, in how we can shape the, the future of the state.
0: Well, I think, I mean, as, as the listeners have been able to tell over the last hour, uh, Governor Bergham's certainly benefiting by having uh, individuals like Robbie Loft and individuals like you, uh, young guys who are clearly very smart, very articulate, know what you're doing and what you're talking about, um, which, you know, with, with how many young folks he brought on was a concern for a lot of people. But you've you've really shown your, your gumption, shown the, the merit that you have and, and why you deserve a voice at the table. Um, at what point are uh, look, look at looking at you? Would you consider uh, leaving the, the Bergman administration, or after your time with the Bergman administration is over, uh, getting into the political arena yourself and moving from the politics side to, uh, to to really making a name for yourself and doing your own thing?
2: Yeah, I, I mean that's that's a great question. You know, it's, it's not something that i really given much thought to yet at this point. I mean, there's just so much great work to be done in, in the governor's office. I'm, I'm learning from, you know, lawmakers like yourself and continue to have one of the best mentors in, in the state, and Governor Doug Burgum. And so we're having fun. Uh, you know, the governor hasn't indicated, you know, how long he intends uh, to serve as governor. It's a little early for him right. to announce reelection. election right. I'd a- say. A- you know, absolutely. And so we're working on hard, you know, right now on, on the... You know issues and, and challenges of the day, the opportunities of the day, um, and I think down the road is it is it a possibility? You know we'll see, but right now we're having we're having a lot of fun, and I think we're we're making a positive difference.
0: Well, I'd certainly hope that you would you would give some consideration towards it in the future. I think you bring a lot of stuff to the table um, that would be a great benefit to people. Whether you 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 know we're going to come back and serve the people of West Fargo in the area that you know and love. Um, or or el- anywhere else in the state, I think you certainly have some tremendous opportunity ahead of you, and I think you can use some of your your, your policy chops to, to the advantage of the state. Uh, you, you're doing it now in the Bergen administration. You got the year of the governor, and and that's certainly a, a tremendous accomplishment, and very beneficial. But uh, w- pretty soon, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's going to be more than four or six years from now. We'll see. We'll see Levi Bachmeier on the ballot somewhere. <laughs>
2: You're too kind. Learning a lot right now, and 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 having a blast. So it's it just it's a tremendous opportunity uh, to be doing you know work that that can make a difference every day.
0: Perfect. And we know we know that, you know the Doug keeps you busy. We know that that tech mindset and everything. He's going to keep you guys running. Uh, anything you remember from or and that people might remember from when he was campaigning and he would show videos about all, you know, working downtown and parking ramps and all that sort of stuff. It would always be pictures that he took when he was leaving the office at 11 PM of the, of the Island Park parking ramp or something like that. When he would talk about downtown density and all that, um, we, we know he burns the candle at both ends and he expects the same from his staff. So you guys are, you are doing a Herculean effort there and, and, Good luck keeping up with the governor on that.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. We got an incredible staff, you know, 16 people. We, we like to think that we're a, a small but mighty office and and everyone, uh, you know, is is working hard all hours of the day to, to support the governor and his vision for the state.
0: Well, this we're, we're, we're going to be wrapping up here on the Rob Port Show. So if you want to find out more about the governor's uh, administration is doing, nd.gov uh, is our state website. They've got press releases up there. You can you can find out about all the boards and commissions that he has up there. Uh, the governor uh, appoints a lot of citizens, lay people to boards, and they need uh, expertise on a lot of these. I know they have uh, dozens of, of uh, openings for hundreds of boards that are out there. So check that out. See how you can get involved in the Bergham administration. See how you can get involved in the state, make this place a better place. Uh, Thank you, Rob Port, for the opportunity to sit in here. Levi, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Uh, Tom. Stick around for the Jay Thomas Show here after the break.